Ladies and gentlemen, um, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Richard Ovenden and I have the pleasure and privilege of being Bodley's librarian and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the Bodleian this evening and uh, in particular to this lecture theatre here in the Western Library which as you can see is in the process of still being handed back to us and we are still in the process of chasing the contractors out of the building um, so you are to some extent guinea pigs this evening in our new, in our new lecture theatre but um, I hope that you will be able to sit back, sit back, relax and enjoy um, a very stimulating um, uh, early evening discussion um, today. I should also point out that this is one of the few parts of this building that uh, awaits a donor's name on the room. I <laughs> just thought I'd put that out there um, for you. And I should also perhaps point out that of the uh, roughly 120 seats that you're uh, relaxing in, uh, so far, about 65 of them have been sponsored at uh, £1,000 ago, and I thought I'd also just leave that, um, um, uh, leave that out there. It is my great pleasure, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to introduce our speakers this evening, who could hardly be more distinguished or better qualified to discuss two of the great political figures of the last century, Roy Jenkins and Harold Macmillan. I had the pleasure and privilege of knowing very slightly uh, the Earl of Stockton, as he was by then, when I worked in the House of Lords in the mid-1980s, um, especially as one of his titles was Lord Macmillan of Ovenden. <laughs> I would occasionally also encounter Roy Jenkins when I, made, um, when I was uh, told to make forays down the other end of the committee corridor, and uh, both of these men were huge figures. They were real big hitters, men of great stature, great intellect, great intelligence, and great warmth and good humour as well, um, even to very lowly minions like me who were just really um, uh, chasing, chasing around, uh, uh, doing things for them and their, and their peers. Um, but they seem to me now to be cut from a cloth which is um, increasingly rare and hard to find. And it's a real privilege for us now, and for me personally, to have the responsibility of curating their archives here in the Bodleian Library. And these two uh, collections are perhaps the brightest jewels among the spectacular bling, if I can put it like that, of our modern political archival collections here in the Bodleian. The National Archives recently estimated that we look after roughly a third of the archives of Britain relating to the 20th century, both a joy and a heavyweight responsibility. You cannot research or understand 20th century politics without coming to the Bodleian at some point. We're very lucky indeed to be given the papers of Roy Jenkins after his death, and with the pleasure of looking after one of this great and beloved politician and Chancellor, comes the responsibility of making these papers accessible to scholars. I'm pleased to report that this evening we also celebrate the availability of the Jenkins papers, which, we've now, which have now been catalogued and are available for study here. This is made possible through the generosity of many individuals, some of whom are in this room this evening, and I would like to pay tribute to their generosity and to thank them very warmly indeed. Jenkins and Macmillan have been the subject of many scholarly words and their lives and legacies will continue to be studied and debated for many years to come. Their importance as political thinkers and active politicians and indeed men of great influence in broader social life, not least of which is being Chancellor of this university, um, has been endorsed by the publication uh, of two recent biographies and it's our great pleasure to welcome D.R. Thorpe and John Campbell, perhaps our two leading polit political historians in this country today. D.R. Thorpe's work on the constitutional history and politics of the 20th century has made him one of Britain's most respected historians. His most recent book, Supermac, completes a triptych of biographies of 20th century prime ministers, his previous subjects being Alec Douglas Hume and Anthony Eden. Supermac, shortlisted for the Orwell Prize in 2011, was awarded the biennial English-speaking Union Marsh Biography Award. 
He's also written about Selwyn Lloyd, Austin Chamberlain, Lord Curzon and Lord Butler. D.R. Thorpe is a senior member of Brasenose College and has been a fellow of Churchill College, Cambridge and of St Anthony's College here in Oxford. John Campbell is one of Britain's leading political biographers. His first book, Lloyd George, The Goat in the Wilderness, was published by Jonathan Cape in 1977 and was runner-up in that year's Yorkshire Post Award for the best first book by a new author. Since then, he has written Effie Smith, First Lord of Birkenhead, 1983, Nye Bevan and the Mirage of British Socialism, 1986, Edward Heath, 1993, winner of the 1994 NCR Book Award for Nonfiction, Margaret Thatcher, The Grocer's Daughter, 2000, and Margaret Thatcher, The Iron Lady, in 2003. Uh, and most recently, of course, uh, Roy Jenkins' A Well-Rounded Life, which, has been shortlist which was shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction. D.R. Thorpe and John Campbell will each speak and then be joined in discussion by another leading politician and figure in British political life, our beloved Chancellor, Lord Patton of Barnes, who, of course, needs absolutely no introduction to this audience this evening. A final thread which joins our two subjects, our current Chancellor and myself, is the fact that we all have an association with Balliol College, and this allows me to speculate on what the collective noun for those with an association with Balliol might be. An effortless superiority? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our three speakers this evening. And it's now my pleasure to hand over to D.R. Thorpe, who will begin our proceedings. Thank you very much for your introduction, Richard, that was kind. Talking of collective names, uh, of course, there's a famous uh, Morris Bower uh, thing when something was going on at Wadham and there were all the heads of houses there, and somebody said, what's the collective name for all these heads of houses? And he suggested, a lack of principles. <laughs> <laughs> Just extra little joke there. Um, it's very, very uh, uh, rewarding to have uh, so many members of the Macmillan and the uh, 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 Jenkins family here today, and uh, very uh, flattered that uh, they should... Uh, uh, come along. Um, uh, I must start with uh, a story that Anthony Kenny told me when I was researching uh, Harold Macmillan's life. And it's about his chancellorship too, which is uh, obviously part of the theme of what's going on uh, in our talks tonight. On the day that Margaret Thatcher was denied an honorary degree uh, by Oxford University, it happened to be a, a Balliol Gordy. And both Macmillan and Jenkins were guests at this Gordy. And um, they were going up the stairs to Balliol Hall, uh, but of course Macmillan had to pause on the landing because uh, you know, it was a long way up for an elderly man. Um, and uh, he turned to uh, Roy Jenkins and said, you know, Roy, it's a terrible sadness, our university denying uh, 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 the Prime Minister an honorary degree. But you know, it's all a matter of class. Uh, the Dons, by and large, are upper middle class, and the, uh, um, they could never really forgive Mrs. Thatcher for being so resolutely lower middle class. But you know, Roy, we're above all that kind of thing with our working class ancestry. <laughs> which is why my first chapter is called Working Class Ancestry, which was true of Macmillan, but many generations back, whereas it was really quite true of uh, uh, Roy Jenkins, but just one or two generations uh, uh, back. Um, but... Um, Vernon Bogdan had told me that actually this, this episode uh, about the, the, the Thatcher degree showed Macmillan's mischievousness because uh, he knew that as a nonagenarian Chancellor of Oxford, he wouldn't be denied when he suggested to Geoffrey um, uh, Warnock, who was the Vice-Chancellor and Principal of Harford, that she ought to be awarded an honorary degree, knowing very well that it was going to be an extremely controversial thing. <laughs> and uh, so in a way, good thing on fireworks night, uh, he lit the blue touch paper and, and retired to enjoy what then happened. Um, so there was an element of uh, uh, mischievousness uh, there, and I think this was shown in that uh, episode. Uh, of course, one of the most interesting things about uh, Macmillan's chancellorship of Oxford is, is the, the way in which he actually got uh, the post, because it was the first elected chancellorship since uh, Lord Cave defeated uh, Asquith in 1925. Um, Halifax had been you know, 
nominated for the post. And uh, it seemed, when Willem was away in South Africa on the Winds of Change uh, tour, that Oliver Franks would just, Nemcon, become the Chancellor. But Hugh Trevor Roper had other ideas. He, he felt that really uh, Macmillan would be the kind of person uh, uh, to have as Chancellor if only he could get him to the starting gate. Now, um, Macmillan on the way back um, from South Africa on the, on the boat was rung by radio telephone by uh, uh, his son Morris, who said, look, there's a move to make you Chancellor of Oxford. Uh, what do you feel about that? And Macmillan was immediately attracted to the, to the chase of this, that uh, it appealed to him. And when he said he would he'd really have to um, talk to the cabinet, and many people in the cabinet were, were very wary about this. And uh, uh, Kilmuir said to him, you know, you, you, you've got nothing um, you know, to gain. You mean, uh, you, you could you know, kind of fall off and damage yourself, and it's too risky. And Macmillan said, well, you could say the same about fox hunting, really. Uh, but really, he, he enjoyed it. I think he would have enjoyed it even if he hadn't got it. But then, of course, the, the absolute uh, kind of, you know, battle for, for votes. And Balliol, of course, were very much uh, uh, mustered behind uh, Macmillan. And, uh, of course, the university uh, gained a tremendous amount of uh, fees through old members taking their MA so they'd be able to vote in, in person, including various cabinet ministers um, too. And of course in the end uh, Macmillan was elected quite decisively. And uh, one of the interesting things is that uh, Macmillan of course greatly admired Oliver Franks. He'd never forgotten working with him in uh, the Ministry of Supply during the war. And um, he wasn't uh, in any way you know, personally antagonistic towards uh, Franks in the way that uh, uh, Hugh, Hugh Trevor uh, Roper was. He, he, he admired Franks uh, uh, very much indeed. Um, and so the thing was that um, I think the chancellorship was very much what one made of it. Uh, Halifax, by and large, had been you know, an absentee kind of figure. I mean, he, he spoke up for the university and did some fundraising. But, I mean, he, he was on the historic buildings, you know, agenda. And uh, so, by and large, um, he didn't, as it were, do an awful lot. And one of the reasons that Trevor Roper didn't really want uh, Franks was that, of course, Franks lived in North Oxford, and he didn't want him kind of turning up too often. I mean, it was better to let <laughs> things uh, unfold. And um, so Macmillan really, you know, enjoyed that. And uh, I think with, you know, Curzon and uh, Halifax and Macmillan and then Jenkins, I think the two key things were high political office and academic distinction. And, of course, Jenkins and Macmillan ful fulfilled this, uh, you know, absolutely. Uh, it caused a tremendous excitement, this, this election in uh, 1960, after Halifax's death in December 1959. And it coincided with um, uh, the Electrical Trades Union having a kind of fraud accusation about some of their trade union votes that were going on at the time. And Anthony Wedgwood Ben, as he was then called, later Tony Ben, he said uh, in Parliament at uh, Prime Minister's Question Time, I'm glad to see that it's not only the electrical trade unions who can organise elections very well, you know, ironically, um, he said that this is certainly true of, uh, uh, you know, the establishment, uh, that they uh, can have a, a result declared in Latin, open to all MAs of the university, uh, and uh, uh, it really is, is a lesson about how the establishment works, to which Macmillan replied, except, of course, on this occasion, the establishment didn't win. <laughs> and that really, of course is a paradigm of Macmillan's career. He, he was in many ways an outsider. And a lot of the people in the uh, Tory party, uh, the old croakers and things, that they, they rather mistrusted him. And when he had the um, uh, you know, Winds of Change speech, which took place on a Monday in South Africa, then they formed the Monday Club. And, um, uh, you know... Really, um, Macmillan always had this element of being something of an outsider uh, in, in, in the party. Um, and I think this is really... I mean, I think there are two things about Macmillan which are often underestimated. And um, I think the first is that he was the first post-war Tory leader to take the party out of the shadow of Churchill. Now, 
Eden had never been able to do that. I mean, Eden had always been under the shadow of Churchill, and, and really Churchill had been, you know, in many ways very cruel towards Eden. Um, you know, when um, Eden was away in Boston having that remedial operation on the gallbladder, um, you know, there was a mix of mitosis uh, kind of going on, you know, and Craythorne, Dugdale, the Minister of Agriculture, he was having to deal with all this, it was a big thing. And at Cabinet, um, Churchill said in Eden's absence, uh, I'm not happy about all this kind of uh, foot and mouth. There's no danger of Antony catching it, is there? <laughs> and, and there was these kind of remarks he made about Eden. And when Selwyn Lloyd's father uh, died, and Selwyn Lloyd as uh, Minister of Defence had to be in uh, the Wirral for the funeral, uh, Churchill said, uh, Eden then back alongside him, uh, that really um, um, it was such a sadness that Selwyn Lloyd, the minister, couldn't be there because his father had uh, just died, and so young, only 90. Eden <laughs> 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 was racking his brains at all this. Um, and so Churchill took the party out of the shadow of uh, Churchill and, and, and began to forge it in his own kind of identity. And, uh, I mean, Churchill was appalled by the winds of change speech. He, 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 he didn't really approve of, of that at all. Whereas, of course, Macmillan could see the way history was going, and certainly on things like decolonization. This was something where he was able to take it out of the shadow uh, of Churchill. And I think that's one of the, the, the big things that when I was researching the book, quite a few people said to me, of course, he was the first true post-Churchill prime minister and leader of the Conservative Party. And I think that, that is, you know, as it were, uh, very true. I think the second big thing about uh, Macmillan, which is not often uh, um, you know, uh, uh, considered, is that he educated the Tory party out of its prejudices. Uh, and he, he led it in directions which they weren't expecting uh, and really brought them up to date on so many issues. Uh, and uh, I think just as a little kind of... I think that's one of the reasons why... Uh, David Cameron admires him because I, I think there's a similarity there uh, with you know, trying with certain ingrained attitudes, as it were, to, to bring them uh, up to date. So on things like decolonization, Keynesian uh, economics, I mean, all of these things, you know, a lot of the, the older style, the Waldron Smithers of this uh, uh, era, uh, they, they really couldn't uh, you know, stomach this. And so Macmillan's mischievousness, his outsider element, I think were all very important ingredients. And when the 1959 election was due, and that was of course one of the tremendous achievements, that the Tories were way behind in the opinion polls in January 57 after the uh, um, you know, Suez crisis. And yet in October 59, he, he led uh, uh, the party uh, to a hundred landslide uh, majority. Uh, and uh, he, he gave, he, he rallied all the MPs before they went off to canvassing. And he said that they should remember when they went back to their constituencies the story of G.K. Chesterton and how G.K. Chesterton uh, was going to speak at some northern city and the mayor sent him a telegram saying, uh, a brass band will be waiting for you at the station. And uh, Macmillan uh, uh, recounted that uh, Chesterton replied, Forget the brass band, I am bringing my own trumpet. <laughs> and he said, that's really what you've got to do. When you go back to your constituency, you've got to bring your own trumpet. And then after the election victory, uh, he assembled all the backbenchers, uh, and he said to them, don't be afraid to be a rebel. Don't be afraid to go against the conventional wisdom. He said, that was a lot of the things of myself in the 1930s. He said, but there's only one piece of advice I'd give you, and that is, uh, don't rebel on more than one issue at a time, <laughs> otherwise it confuses the whips. <laughs> and again, that was pre and post the 59 election uh, was, was a very, very important thing. And then, of course, embracing the common market. This was, uh, you know, something which, uh, well, still is a uh, you know, kind of controversial issue. Um, but uh, he, he had the ability, I think, to, to look ahead. Um, when, when I first saw him, because he helped me on two of my books, uh, I saw him down at Birch Grove uh, in 1975. 
uh, and um, I mean it was just unforgettable. Uh, but we went out. It was a, it was April and the daffodils were out, and uh, he said. Uh, I'll show you where Kennedy's helicopter was when he came in June 63. And so we went out uh, and we came to this uh, flattish area in the uh, park. And he was obviously very moved. Uh, and he said that, you know, I often come here and I can see in my mind's eye now that helicopter going down the valley and beyond the trees. And then he said before the, the leaves had turned, he was taken from us by an assassin's bullet. And he, he was obviously very moved. And as we were going back to, to the big house, he said, but I've always felt that was a, um, a great, you know, as it were, metaphor for Jack, because he could always see beyond the trees. Well, marvellous. And I think the thing is that that was true of Macmillan. He could see beyond the trees. Now, Enoch Powell has famously said that all political careers end in failure in everything. And obviously, after you've been kind of six and a half years in office, you know, things are going to turn, and he certainly had bad luck with de Gaulle, you know, saying no. And I think with Harold Wilson coming in as the, the, the new leader, although Wilson and uh, uh, Macmillan really, I mean, they both admired each other. They, in many ways, they were quite similar uh, uh, in certain aspects. And, I mean, Harold Wilson once told me that he really, you know, admired very much Macmillan's political uh, skills. Uh, I must have come to a close now, but... Uh, um, I think one of the great myths about Macmillan's career is that the perfumer affair ended his premiership prematurely. He did exactly the opposite. He was about to uh, retire in June 1963. He wanted to. Uh, but, um, you know, they sort of allowed whoever his successor was, uh, you know, 18 months before the October 64 election. And then, of course, the perfumer affair broke. And he couldn't kind of go in the wake of that because it, it would look as though he'd been driven out, as it were, by the perfume affair. So he stayed on. And then, of course, it was only in October and he, he, he was, in the end, forced to resignation, not by perfumer, but by his prostate uh, and his illness. Um, uh, and he, he retired. And then, of course, the, uh, um, the other great myth is that... Uh, he doctored things to make sure that Rad Butler didn't get the uh, job, which is completely untrue. Uh, and uh, he had all the telephone calls to uh, uh, 10 Downing Street transcribed, and he, he, he produced those uh, uh, memoranda for the Queen. And uh, when I saw him in 1975, he said that his great regret about at the end of the day, his final volume of memoirs, was that he didn't publish uh, the memorandum that he gave to the Queen at uh, the hospital uh, in the uh, uh, book. And so I was delighted when the Macmillan Book Trust allowed me you know, copyright to publish for the first time uh, as an appendix to my uh, biography uh, this memoranda, uh, the two memoranda to the Queen, because he, he very fairly told about what happened, uh, you know, about the midnight meeting and everything. Uh, and Rab Butler, I mean, he said to me once that the only time he really had a chance of being Prime Minister... Uh, was in uh, uh, June 1953 when Churchill was you know, incapacitated by stroke at Chartwell and Eden was at uh, Boston you know, on the surgeon's table. Uh, and he knew he wasn't going to get it in 57 and he knew he was never going to get it in uh, October 63. Uh, and so I think those two myths need to be scotched very early on. But um, I think when one looks, um, you know, in full at Macmillan's career. It, it, it was such a distinguished one in, in so many ways. Uh, and it's interesting that David Markand, whom I quote in the book, said that he was the nearest thing in the post-war era to being a great prime minister. Uh, and I think this is, this is true. And uh, to have uh, uh, lived with him for seven years, as it were, researching his life was, was a great privilege. And uh, uh, I, shall, I shall never forget that. Those are some thoughts. Yeah. Right, well, thank you very much. Um, following from that slightly different vein, I think, possibly, um, the first thing I'm going to remind you of about Roy Jenkins is the extraordinary longevity of his career. Yeah. 
He made his maiden speech in the House of Commons in support of Stafford Cripps' um, budget in 1948. He made his final speech in the House of Lords warning Tony Blair against going into Iraq in the, at the end of 2002. That is an extraordinarily long 54-year span of active politics, matched, I think, only by two of his own great um, biographical subjects, Gladstone and Churchill. Even Macmillan, who arguably you know, lasted longer, he had 40 years of active politics from 1924 to 63, then sort of went into hibernation for 20 years until he re-emerged um, to criticise Mrs Thatcher for selling the family silver. But I don't think anyone matches that level of engagement with the whole course of British politics over such a long period as Roy Jenkins did, um, which is why I've written rather a long book about him. Um, but in all that 50 years, again, something to remember is he only held office for eight years of that half century. Two spells as Home Secretary from 65 to 67, and again from 74 to 76, and three years as Chancellor of the Exchequer from 67 to 70. And of course, he never became Prime Minister. And yet, I would argue that he left more lasting influence on British society and British politics than most of those who did become Prime Minister more than any other individual in the past half century apart from Margaret Thatcher. Arguably, you could say that his career was a failure insofar as the social democratic society that he believed in was thoroughly trounced by the Thatcherite vision um, of free markets, unregulated capitalism and the widening inequality uh, under which we are still, unfortunately, living. Nevertheless, in spite of that, I think he left this lasting legacy in at least three areas of British public life. First, and perhaps most lasting, his liberal reforms as Home Secretary in the 60s, and in fact not forgetting the 70s, although his 60s period is, is, is the sort of classic period where he um, was able to push through the legalisation of homosexuality and easier abortion um, and a number of other things. He also in the, um, did the first, um, the first race relations legislation and the first gender equality legislation, which probably affected more people, actually, than um, the, um, the, than, than, than the um, abortion and homosexuality things. But in all these ways, um, I think he, he created the legislative framework for much of the society that we have today. And I think Mrs. Thatcher may have won the economic argument, but I think Roy Jenkins has shaped our social life more successfully than perhaps than Mrs. Thatcher did. Um, sorry, can I get some water? Secondly, his his role was second only to Ted Heath in taking us into the European community and keeping us in there at the 75 referendum. This will be familiar to most people, but I mean, this was clearly at the time and until very recently seen as an irreversible historic achievement. Um, even 10 years ago when he died, I think the idea that it would be considered possible that we would come out was unthinkable. Maybe that has changed. Maybe it will turn out to be a historical cul-de-sac. Um, I hope not, but um, this was certainly has framed British politics for the last you know, 40 years, and Jenkins had from the, he was one of the first people to take up the cause of getting Britain into Europe from about 1957 onwards, and he was very um, instrumental in getting us in and um, keeping us in. Thirdly, I think his role in the realignment of the centre-left of British politics, um, which 
from the SDP through the Lib Dems to um, arguably the godfather of a new Labour. This is unfinished business still, as is the reform of the electoral system, which he was one of the first people in the mid-70s to see that the two-party system was um, running out of steam. It wasn't working. It was broken, needed to be replaced. He was campaigning for PR from that time onwards. We still haven't got it, but I think inevitably, with a couple more hung parliaments, we will get it. Um, and I think, again, Jenkins will be seen as a pioneer of pointing in that direction. So I think these, these are his political achievements, which I think are familiar probably to most people in this room. And I'm not, in fact, going to dwell any more on those. We can come back to them later if you want. I thought in, this, on, in these circumstances, I was actually going to talk more about him as his connection with Oxford and his chancellorship of Oxford. Because with all his political achievements, to say nothing of his 23, um, of his 23 books, one of the pr his proudest achievements was becoming chancellor of Oxford in 1987. And he held the office for the last 15 years, years, of, his, for the last 15 years of his life until 2003. Jenkins' life was shaped by Oxford. It was here that he made the friends, the rivals, the connections with whom his career intersected for the whole of the rest of his career, most notably of Ted Heath and Dennis Healy, who were contemporaries at Balliol, but also Tony Crossland, importantly, and a host of others like Julian Amory, Maurice Macmillan, Mark Bonham Carter. I mean, the predominance of Oxford in producing the political class, then as now, was extraordinary and disproportionate. Um, like Heath and Healy, and indeed Margaret Roberts five years later, Jenkins came to Oxford from a state school and a relatively humble background, as uh, Richard referred to. His father, Arthur Jenkins, had indeed started life as a miner, but he had risen very high in the miners' union, and by the time Roy was 15, um, he was MP for Pontypool, and soon afterwards, PPS to Attlee, and um, throughout the war when Attlee was Deputy Prime Minister. And as a young man, Arthur Jenkins had won a minor's scholarship to Oxford, I mean, to, to uh, Ruskin College, Oxford. Um, and ever afterwards, Arthur regarded himself as an Oxford man, and it was he who was determined that Roy should go to Oxford. And uh, there is a little scrap of a diary, which I quote in my book, sort of typed, but... Um, endearingly, childishly spelled, in which the eight-and-a-half-year-old Roy writes, This year for Whitson, we decided to go to Oxford so that I could decide which college I wanted to go to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, but that was at eight-and-a-half. In fulfilment of his father's ambition for him, Roy succeeded in getting, getting into Balliol from a very ordinary school, not, in fact, a grammar school like Healy and Heath, but Abersachen County School, which he described, Roy described somewhere as a, as a pretty awful school. Um, and in fact, only after a year at Univers University College at Cardiff, which tends to be overlooked in his CV, but he went there for a year before he came to Oxford. From Oxford, as I say, he never looked back. Arthur died in 1946, before Roy's political career had got underway. But I think he would probably have been prouder of the fact of Roy finishing up as Chancellor of Oxford than he would if he had been Prime Minister. <coughs> Jenkins had always had his eye on the Oxford Chancellorship, ever since writing his 1964 biography of Asquith, who, of course, as the most distinguished living Oxonian of the day, was scandalously denied the job by partisan Tory prejudice in favour of the very dim figure of Lord Cave in 1925, whom Jenkins described as the least distinguished occupant of the Woolsack for the first 30 years of this century. So it pleased Jenkins greatly that one achievement that he, where he managed to surpass Asquith was that he did get the Chancellorship of Oxford, which was denied to his, his, his sort of political model, Asquith. But he assumed for a long time that when Macmillan died, the front-runner would be Quintin Hailsham. I think I probably saw myself, he wrote, more as a left-of-centre candidate willing to lose than as a likely winner. Macmillan's longevity, however, worked to Jenkins' advantage, since by 1987, Hailsham was 80, and Mrs Thatcher had bitterly divided the Tory ranks in the university. 
Ted Heath, as a former Tory Prime Minister, felt the job should be his. But he was so disliked by Tories loyal to Mrs Thatcher that they put up the historian Robert Blake, Lord Blake, which neatly split the Tory vote, allowing Jenkins, ironically for an avowed critic of the the first-past-the-post system, (laughs) to come through the middle and win with 3,249 votes to Blake's 2674 and Heath's 2348. But I think Jenkins also won because he was widely seen as the best man for the job. His supporters ran a remarkable campaign, signing up an extraordinary range of endorsements from the great and good of liberal Oxford, very much the sort of people who had flocked to join the SDP in 1981. His principal backers were Sir Alec Cancross, Sir Klaus Moser, Asa Briggs, Isaiah Berlin, with Anthony Kenny, the master of Valiel, and Michael Brock, uh, warden of Nuffield, more discreetly in the background. Um, and I think it's worth quoting Alec Cancross's pitch for Jenkins, uh, for Jenkins' candidacy, since it listed six reasons, in addition to his political eminence, why he would make the best chancellor. He would be immensely proud of the distinction and would discharge the duties assiduously. He lived nearby and would therefore be readily available for university occasions. He would provide the elegance and wit which after Macmillan, the Chancellor's speeches were expected to display. He would bring international prestige to the university and speak for the university to the government. And he would oppose the philistinism and short-sightedness which now colour prevailing attitudes towards the universities. And I think it can be said that Jenkins delivered on all of these promises. He was immensely proud of the distinction. At his installation, he declared that nothing in my life has given me greater pleasure than my election as Chancellor, and he meant it, as well as the pleasure it would have given his father. He, he was his great satisfaction from attaining the one prize that Asquith had missed. He also worked very hard at it. He did live just 20 miles away at East Hendred, so that he was able to be a highly visible Chancellor, more so, I think, than Macmillan, attending all sorts of university and college events and still get to sleep in his own bed every night. It was, therefore, the perfect semi-retirement job for him, just at the moment when he was about to lose his Hill head seat and move to the House of Lords. And he was, I think, just about perfect for most aspects of the job. He loved the ceremonial side of it, the academic dress, the processions, the speeches in Latin and the formal dinners, representing Oxford all around the world, to which he did bring the wit and elegance that Can Cross had anticipated. But he also loved the opportunity to dine informally in the colleges and savour the academic life. He was not an academic, but he had written books and he was a good enough amateur historian to hold his own and win the respect of the dons and fellows. He was much better company at high table than Ted Heath would have been. (laughs) He immediately started a programme of dining at all the colleges in turn, usually making a well-researched little speech with some neatly turned compliments to famous alumni, past and living. In April 1988, he told a dinner in Washington that I sometimes think I do little but respond to toasts at college dinners. But in his first two years, he also spoke to every other sort of university audience, from the university church to the university air squadron, and the pre-match dinner before the Oxford and Cambridge rugby match. Altogether, he reckoned to fulfil 40 to 50 Oxford-related engagements a year in Oxford itself, and a good many more around the world. With typical precision, he calculated that the job took a good quarter of my time and energy, but provided something more like half my interest. He also loved bestowing honorary degrees. In his first year, a new chancellor is allowed to nominate his own choice, of distinguished people to receive honorary degrees. And Jenkins characteristically took the opportunity to honour a dozen selected friends and admired contemporaries from different parts of his life, with the notable exception of British politics. His list comprised five resident members of the university, all of whom had certainly voted for him, Isaiah Berlin, Anthony Kenny, Dorothy Hodgkin, Iris Murdoch, and the current Vice-Chancellor Patrick Neal, plus also, as a nod to his Hill Head constituency, the principal of Glasgow University, Alwyn Williams. Two distinguished Americans, Robert McNamara and Arthur Schlesinger, 
And from his years in Brussels as president of the commission, the, the uh, king of the Belgians, the president of Italy, and the former Irish Taoiseach Garrett Fitzgerald, plus, to round it off, his old friend and Oxford contemporary, of course, um, um, sorry, Nicholas, um, um, Nicholas, um, Nicholas Henderson, who had been ambassador successively in Bonn, Paris, and Washington. So, that, I mean, they make a wonderful group of his friends who represent his life in an extraordinary way. In, in subsequent years, he also entertained and honoured Bill Clinton, Mikhail Gorbachev, Vaxlav Havel, um, and the president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, as well as cultural luminaries like she Seamus Heaney and David Hockney, though these were not his choice of, of, of um, honorary graduates. There was, however, one unfortunate incident when he was conferring an honorary degree on Gorbachev in 1996, when he referred to him throughout as Mr. Brezhnev. <laughs> this was actually a very rare example of um, Jenkins being, 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 being the worse after having lunched too well. He wasn't often caught out that way. At the same time, there was enough serious content to the job, acting as a sort of constitutional monarch to the vice-chancellor, with no power but the right to be consulted, uh, to advise, and to exercise influence behind the scenes to keep him intellectually stimulated. In the 15 years of his chancellorship, he worked with four vice-chancellors. Patrick Neal, who was in post when he was elected, Richard Southwood, Peter North, and finally Colin Lucas, a historian whom he was influential in appointing and the one with whom he had the closest relationship. Lucas found Jenkins easy to talk to and full of shrewd advice, a consummate politician with great powers of accommodation and persuasion, always looking to steer sensible change by agreement without losing sight of the objective. And he came to rely on him, he told me, more and more. And a very good example of Jenkins' sort of behind-the-scenes you know, wisdom as Chancellor was the question of whether, Somers of whether Somerville should follow the example of other women's colleges and admit male undergraduates and fellows. In 1992, the governing body voted to do so but opponents of the change, both present students and alumni, objected that they had not been consulted and appealed formally to Jenkins in his ex officio capacity as visitor of the college. Jenkins considered the case carefully before delivering an even-handed judgment of Solomon, ruling that the college had acted perfectly legally but should have consulted more widely. He therefore proposed a year's delay, by which time a lot of the heat had gone out of the controversy. The first men were admitted without fuss in 1994. He also played a discreet role in persuading the Oxford and Cambridge Club in London to admit lady members. Finally, he also played a wider role in speaking up for Oxford in particular, and increasingly for the universities in general, uh, against um, successive governments. He introduced a successful House of Lords amendment um, to Kenneth Baker's education bill defending sort of tenure for university lecturers. He constantly criticised the Thatcher government's record towards the universities, and he kept up his criticism of the Blair government's policy towards Oxford. Um, particularly, he, if you remember, he rebutted Gordon Brown's allegations about um, um, some entry in the so-called Laura Spence affair. He also, towards the end, um, supported, very much supported the introduction of tuition fees, which he supported Blair in pushing that through, and he would have liked to make them higher as a necessary, regrettable but necessary way of maintaining standards, and particularly what he was always concerned with, the status of Oxford as, as one of the top universities in the world. So in all these ways, I think the job suited him incredibly well, and he um, discharged it extraordinarily well. The one part of the job he was not perhaps so good at was fundraising. He recognised its increasing importance and he travelled the world to do it. Much more, I suspect, than Macmillan did, but probably less than Lord Patton probably does. Um, but he did not like that side of it and he was honestly not very good at it. Anyway, I've, discussed, I've concentrated on his chancellorship. We can come back to the wider 
um, aspects of his career in discussion later. But altogether, I believe that Jenkins was an excellent chancellor of the university and that the role was the perfect culmination of what I have in my book called A Well-Rounded Life. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll now move into a sort of discussion mode uh, with um, our current Chancellor, appropriately enough, uh, in between the other two Balliol men, as it were. Over to you. Um, I, I, listening to that, um, I, I was uh, reminded of something I say um, uh, all too frequently, that um, uh, it's not obligatory to be from Balliol to become Chancellor, it's just normal. <laughs> um, first of all, thank you very much indeed for inviting me to uh, um, share this uh, occasion, albeit briefly, and it's a real pleasure that, um, that so many members of both the families of these heroes um, are with us um, today. Um, I, I didn't want to begin by discussing the qualities of uh, required to be um, uh, Oxford's Chancellor, because I thought that might become a little too um, personal. I do just recall um, what both um, my predecessors said about the Chancellorship. Uh, Macmillan <clears throat> having a sort of metaphysical um, uh, explanation for the role when asked, said, well, as you know, the Vice-Chancellor actually runs the university but if you didn't have a chancellor, you couldn't have a vice-chancellor. <laughs> uh, and I think it was Roy who described the job as one in which impotence was assuaged by magnificence, which is <laughs> also true. But I really wanted to start um, by asking you a couple of um, more political um, questions. Um, what do you think are the differences between the qualities required to become Prime Minister and the qualities required to be Prime Minister. Um, because you've both written about um, very significant politicians who didn't quite uh, make it to the top, um, and you've written about Prime Ministers who, uh, who self-evidently got to the top. Um, so what, what do you think are the differences between the two? Well, I think uh, to become Prime Minister, there's a great element of luck. It's how the cards fall. Uh, I mean, in the summer of 1963, Reggie Maudlin would almost certainly have become NEMCON, the Tory party leader, had Macmillan, if the perfume affair hadn't taken place, uh, you know, been kind of... He'd, he'd have emerged as, as the thing, um, as, the, as a candidate. And yet by... Um, you know, October, Maudlin's you know, star had kind of faded mysteriously. And of course, Hume and Hailsham were also then in the, the bracket because there'd been the Peerage Act. So I think there's a great deal of luck. I mean, nobody would have anticipated Bonner Law becoming uh, uh, Prime Minister. Uh, but I think the thing is that once you get there, I think the ability to have had so many kind of jobs beforehand. I mean, I think Macmillan had held seven ministerial posts before he became Prime Minister, uh, including, of course, uh, Foreign Secretary and uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and, of course, had had such a career in business with Macmillan and co., the publishers, in wartime, you know, both you know, active service in the First World War, loose particularly, and then in the Second World War when he was Viceroy of the Mediterranean. And I think to have had this range of experience and I think one of the things in the last 30 years is that, you know, Blair came to um, uh, the office of Prime Minister, and as somebody once said, the only thing he'd run before that was the ugly rumours pop group. Uh, <laughs> now, I mean, that might be unkind, but it's, it's basically true. Mm. And then, of course, the thing is, of course, with um, David Cameron, that you have a long period of Labour government, and I think if you have long periods of government, it means that there are very few people around you who've had experience. I think... William Hague had been Secretary of State for Wales, hadn't he? And so he was about, you know, the only one with real kind of cabinet experience. And so I think that the earlier generation, the, you know, the people like Attlee and, uh, you know, Eden and uh, Macmillan and, and Wilson, they'd have experience of so many other things 
outside the Westminster village, which I think, I think that helps uh, a great deal. I mean, McMillan had seen so many of these things happening before. Um, and uh, I think he, he was very grateful for you know, the, the, the help he got from the Queen, who of course had had by that time Churchill and Eden as kind of Prime Minister, but of course um, now has had, was it 19 Prime Ministers she's been able to compare. So I think there's a great deal of luck about becoming Prime Minister, how the cards fall. And I think to be a successful Prime Minister, it helps to have had a great range of experience outside Westminster as well as within it. John. Yes, I mean, I think all of that is absolutely true. I mean, Mrs. Thatcher was another who was extraordinarily fortunate that the cards fell in such mm. a way for her to become certainly leader of the Tory party, which a year or so earlier she would not have been regarded as a candidate. Um, Attlee is another one, I mean, who happened to be one of the few survivors of the 1931 mm -hmm. landslide and was therefore in, in position to become leader in 35. You, I, I, I'd, been ask, I'd been asking you for the difference between the qualities required to become Prime Minister and the qualities to be Prime Minister, and you were in the process of answering. Well, I was, mention, I was, I was agreeing with Richard about luck. Um, I, 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 think, I think there are different qualities to be Prime Minister. I mean, Roy Jenkins used to say that he thought he probably would have run quite, you know, I, I get asked the whole time, was he the best Prime Minister we never had? He, um, and in some ways, he would have been. I think he thought he would have run a government well. He would, Dick Crossman said somewhere, that he would have been very good at the big speeches, the big occasions, but he wouldn't have been very good at the sort of nitty-gritty stuff that Harold Wilson did every day. And I think that he wouldn't have been good at the party management side of being Prime Minister, but he might have run run a good government. And those are, I think, two very different skills. Mm. Um, How badly did he want to be Prime Minister? I mean, you get the impression, um, certainly... Um, when talking to um, Molly Butler, that Molly Butler, if Molly Butler had been Rab, Rab would have been Prime Minister, um, that she, uh, she really passionately wanted it. And Rab, well, you know, life's an all, all a bit of a, uh, a muddle, and maybe um, this man doesn't always win. And Well, I think, um, 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 I think you should ask his family to answer that question. <laughs> um, I mean, I can only go on what Roy himself wrote um, on several occasions, that I think he would have liked to have been Prime Minister, but wasn't sure that he would have enjoyed it very much at the time. Um, he, 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 he did want to be, if the occasion arose, but on each of the occasions when it might have arisen, um, he didn't have the single-mindedness, the ruthlessness, to seize mm -hmm. the moment. He had too many other interests. He was perhaps too loyal to Harold Wilson. He was perhaps too nice. I don't know. I don't think he had that. I don't. He recognised in himself the lack of that ruthlessness, which he says somewhere, you know, that the Lloyd Georges, the Wilsons, the Thatchers have to seize their moment. And um, Super Mac was not only spectacularly brave. I mean, the First, oh, World, the First War, World War, yes. the rescue um, of, mm. a, of a man from a burning aircraft in, yes, in North Africa. North Africa. Yeah. Um, but he was also spectacularly ruthless. Oh, yeah. I mean, Enoch Powell's description of the way he behaved in the 1922 committee mm. after Suez. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, um, the um, 1922 committee met in November 1956 when uh, Anthony Eden was in uh, uh, Jamaica. And uh, Enoch Powell said it was one of the most ruthless things that he'd ever seen, that uh, Rab, who in a way was acting prime minister or kind of he was the kind of senior chap, made a rather bland speech. But then Macmillan gave this speech, you know, to the backbenchers, which was just a tour de raison of everything that was going on and why we should never apologise for... I mean, he, he rallied the troops. And at the end of it, you know, people... I mean, I spoke to one or two people who were there, and they said there was no doubt that when the crunch came, I mean, it was going to be Macmillan and not, not Butler would be uh, the leader. And that, that, in a way, was his... He's setting out his stall for what he would do if he, if he was Prime Minister. And uh, he, he, was, he was very good at dealing with Gateskill, but he wasn't so good at dealing with uh, Wilson, because Wilson was, as I said earlier, there was a great similarity in many ways with Wilson, because he was a bit of an outsider in his party too. But he was a shrewd uh, kind of political uh, 
operator. Also an actor. And an actor too, which of course uh, Macmillan had that, uh, that ability as, uh, as well. How much did you think that the, that the fact that they'd both fought in the two world wars affect their um, political judgments and their political um, ambitions? Well, Macmillan never forgot um, you know, the First World War. And I mean, it, it was this water bottle. I mean, he, he, he was struck by a bullet. If his water bottle had not been there, um, then, um, you know, really that would have been the end of it. And uh, uh, one of his uh, uh, great-grandsons, when he saw the Howard Brenton play at uh, yeah. the National Theatre, you know, having it so good, you know, about Mullen, you know, said, you know, that water bottle, if it hadn't been that water bottle, none of us would have been here, you know. Yes. And uh, th this was the case. And it was then, a very positive play about, about Macmillan. Yes, yeah. That, uh, you know, it, it, and Jeremy Irons' performance uh, was very good. Yeah. But um, you know, I think once you... I mean, and the same is true of Eden. I mean, Napoleon said that to understand the man properly, one needs to know what was happening when he was 20. And on his 20th birthday, Eden won the military cross, having seen for a week scores and scores of people shot to death alongside him. And he'd just come through it all. And, I mean, that kind of experience must never, never leave you, that, uh, that, that kind of thing. And do you think it shaped attitudes to Europe and British membership of the European Union, the moral case for uh, um, uh, avoiding that in the future through a great act of historic reconciliation between France and Germany? Yes, I mean... Obviously, Roy Jenkins had lived through the Second World War. It's an exaggeration to say he fought in it. He was he was in uniform throughout the war. Spent the first three years of it on Salisbury Plain, um, and the last year or two at, at, uh, at uh, Bletchley, decoding secrets, which was which is now seen as a rather glamorous thing to have done in the war, um, but um, was of course top secret for 30 years after the war. So nobody knew what Jenkins had done in the war and compared with some of his contemporaries like Dennis Healy and Tony Crossland who had had um, obviously good wars, Jenkins suffered slightly politically from not having apparently had an active service career. Um, but no, I think he was certainly influenced by the experience of the war like most of that generation. Although I, I do insist that he got a lot of his Europeanism from his father, again, who was a great influence on him, travelled a lot in France himself, spoke, I'm told, better French than Roy ever did. Um, so he got his Europeanism before the war, in a sense. Um, we're obviously, it's not unpatriotic to say it, we, we are a reduced country now. I mean, Mr Cameron's Britain doesn't matter as much as... Um, Mr. McMillan's, Mr. McMillan's didn't matter as much as Mr. Attlee's. Um, and the two main political parties will, if they're lucky, get 64, 65% of the vote at the next election, um, whereas in the uh, 1950s mm. it would have been 95%. Um, um, do you think those facts mean that we're... Um, inevitably going to be choosing between um, pretty cut-down um, uh, political leaders over the next few years? I think there is a sense of the impotence of politics nowadays, that they don't, insofar as they have levers, they, they, they don't have the levers to pull to make decisions to affect Britain's place in the world. It's also globalised. I think, yes, I, I, I think there is a disconnection between the electorate's expectations and the politicians' promises and what they're actually able to achieve. And I think this, this has reduced respect for them um, very much, yes. I, I mean, I, I think politics, we have smaller politics because we are a smaller country in the world, yes. I, I would agree with that. Going back to the thing about the war, I think if you'd been through the Battle of Luce, as Macmillan was, and kind of feigned death in a trench, lest if you were thought to be alive, you'd have been blasted away by the Germans. Reading Aeschylus. Reading Aeschylus, yes. I mean, th this is 
it puts things in perspective. And there's a story when he was chancellor that he was going from the uh, from Wadham to the Divinity Schools in 1968, when there was time of real student protest. And Alan Bullock, who was vice chancellor, was was very concerned about the security. Should should they should they do this? I mean, he thought it'd be far better if they, if they drove to the Divinity School. And Macmillan reassured him outside Wadham and said, "No, no," he said, "That that's perfectly all right." He said, "Once we pass the King's Head, it'll be fine." It was always the same in the First World War. The crossroads are the dangerous places. <laughs> it, it gives a certain perspective to things, doesn't it? But we're now left in a world in which oh. uh, I guess the only. Um, politician who would read Aeschylus is um, Boris Johnson. Well, yes, and understand it too. <laughs> thank you both very much indeed. That was really interesting. And thank you all for coming this evening. That was terrific. Yeah, okay.